Our reading this evening is taken from John 13, verses 18 to 30, found on page 1081 in the Bible. Jesus predicts his betrayal. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one, at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon, Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I, when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Jesus took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast, or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. We're going through our, our series in John, uh, looking at the uh, kind of sayings of the upper room, the, the, the time, the, the close time Jesus had with his disciples towards the end of his life. Uh, and the title for today was uh, A Principle to Remember. And um, you may be surprised to see me up here, uh, because I am a, a last-minute substitute. Um, it is the transfer window at the moment, so uh, we kind of played into that, uh, Jeff being away. Um, but um, I was kind of thinking through, um, well, what principles should we remember? And, and at a very base level, I guess I could say to you, remember not to betray Jesus. That would be a, a fairly base level kind of sermon. I could sit down now, my work done. Uh, and you may go home happy and, and well fed, uh, but hopefully uh, what I will share today, I guess, might open up maybe some of the ways we do betray Jesus, uh, but most of all, just the amazing grace Jesus shows, especially with Judas, uh, as we look at this, this passage today. Um, I want to show you a, a a poster that I've discovered a church using to advertise uh, themselves. And just where you are, um, briefly, I want you to decide whether you think this is a good poster or a bad poster, whether you think this is an effective advertising campaign. Um, I'm not going to ask for feedback, um, but I just would like you to think it through. This is the poster. It says this. It says, This church is not full of hypocrites. There's always room for more. Romans 3.10, No one is righteous. Not even one. So just where you are, just for a couple of moments, can you decide, is that a good poster? Would that be an effective advertising campaign? And yes, that is a real poster. I did not create it myself. And no, Helen has not chosen it for the new year. So uh, just where you are, is this an effective advertising campaign? Just where you are, have a little chat. Uh, that'd be great. If you don't know the person next to you, feel free to say hi. This is church after all. Okay. So in a very kind of loose level, a quick show of hands, I'm expecting the majority to abstain. Um, it's the way we do things here, half a hand. Um, is this a good 
advertise a campaign? Will this draw people to church? Raise your hand now. Five. Okay, interested? If this is a bad advertising campaign, raise your hand now. If you're hoping at some point during my sermon I'm going to tell you if it's a good or a bad advertising campaign, raise your hand. I'm not. Our world hates the hypocrite. Our world hates the hypocrite. Now, you may disagree with me, but I watched the last series of The Apprentice and I saw Alan Sugar tear into Stuart Baggs. I saw in previous series how every fact on their job application, their program application, was scrutinised and tested and all falsehood exposed. And yet Stuart Baggs was the first one I have seen ejected so forcibly, even though others have lied, stretched the truth, exaggerated on their form. What was it about him that made Alan Sugar repulse so much? What is it about us that we love on Pop Idol to see the whole panel rip into people that have this vague notion that somehow they are the most talented singers they have ever heard because my mum told me so once? We love it because we like to see falsehood torn down. We like to see falsehood in other people exposed and we like to sit there on our sofas and go, yeah. He got exactly what was coming to him. We all saw it coming, didn't we, with Stuart Baggs, those of you who watched it? Every task where his, his promises became bigger and bigger, every pleading with Alan Sugar as he said, just give me a million pounds, I'll make you a hundred million. And there was that moment where he started talking about being a, a big fish in a small pond. And the opposite man said to him, you're not even a fish. Now, for those of you who don't watch The Apprentice, I apologise. It's still available to watch uh, on iPlayer. Um, but just to kind of get you in on the case too, um, I was looking at some other kind of application form, kind of true stories, just briefly as we go into the passage. And uh, as always, hopefully this will make sense. Uh, true stories from some job interviews. During an interview uh, at a leading American pharmaceutical company, the candidate's alarm clock went off inside their case. At that point, the candidate took the clock out shut it off and apologised and said, I'm sorry, I had to leave for another interview. <laughs> True story. A telephone call came in to an applicant while he was sat in interviews from his wife. I'll read this so I get it exactly right. His side of the conversation went like this. Which company? When do I start? What's the salary? The interviewer at that point said, well, I, I assume you're not interested in conducting the interview any further. To which he promptly responded, as long as you pay me more than them, I don't mind working for you. The interviewer didn't hire them. And says that they later found out that there was no other job offer. It was just a scam to get more money. Going the other end, though, people being truthful. Uh, one applicant, when asked about the reference to his criminal record on his application, I had to tick the box saying, yes, I have a criminal record, was asked, well, what was it? He said this, when I was younger, my friends and I stole a pig. It was only a small pig, though. That was slightly bizarre, but truthful. Going more, on a question which said salary desired, it says this, starting over due to recent bankruptcies, I need a large bonus when starting this job. Not a great start, but honest nonetheless. My favourite one of all, this is um, a question said, what are your bad traits? I am very bad about time, wrote the applicant, and I don't mind admitting it. Having to arrive at a certain hour doesn't make sense to me. 
What does make sense is that I do the job. Any company that insists upon rigid time schedules will find me a nightmare. They didn't get the job. But at least they were honest. At least they were truthful. At least you knew what you were going to get. And as we look, though, at the passage in the upper room, we see that there's something very interesting going on that all was not as it seemed. We're going to look at this as we come through, and we're going to focus especially at Judas, uh, and the, the slides will come up, as you see. Because when we look at this situation in the upper room, all was not as it seemed. Firstly, in verse 14, we know that Judas sat there, had clean feet. Do you remember last week, the amazing account of the upper room feet-washing episode? Can you imagine the scene, the stillness that that descended as, as Jesus knelt down in the manner of a slave and washed his disciples' feet? The Bible talks about this being the moment where he showed them the full extent of his love, and you can imagine that the disciples were stunned. And I found it more stunning this week to be reminded that Judas had had his feet washed. He was sat there like the rest, feet clean. And the reason it stuns me is not that he had the gall to do so, but that Jesus, despite knowing, still knelt down and washed his feet. And because we know that there is nothing false within Jesus, we have to think that he did that genuinely with love and care and compassion as he did for the rest of the disciples. This was no act on Jesus' part. Kneeling down and washing the feet of his betrayer. To all intents and purposes, Judas was part of the club. They're all sat there looking stunned. Their feet now a model showing of how they were to be to each other. And yet Judas knew in his heart that this was as far from him as it was possible to get. We read earlier on, at the beginning of chapter 13, uh, in verse 2, the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Before the foot washing, Judas knew this was the case. And he took it. And yet his heart was so hard that despite that, he still went and did it. To all intents and purposes, Judas looked like a model believer. And yet there was something very missing. And it gets more kind of interesting because as we look through the passage, Judas wasn't suspected. When Jesus challenges his disciples and says, I've chosen those I know I've chosen, but one of you is going to betray me. Look in verse 22. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. In Mark, he expands it further and each disciple says, surely not I, Lord. Now that's either a group of men with a very guilty conscience, each and every one of them, if you think about it. One of you is going to betray me. Is it going to be me? Maybe they were taken by surprise by the way that Jesus had continually mixed things up. We know in the case of Peter, he was going to betray. In a different way, Jesus is going to tell him that later on. And yet, I don't know, when I was a youngster, I used to think of Judas being the pantomime villain disciple. Everyone else kind of walking boldly behind Jesus and Judas kind of creeping like this across the the kind of floor. We know from the earlier accounts that he was the money holder, the one that held the purse, and it suits us to think of him being the obviously evil one. And yet it's not the case. In Matthew, Judas self-admits when you read the account. He says, surely not I. And Jesus says, it is as you said, or you said it. But no one else sees it. To all intents and purposes, Judas is a model disciple. There is nothing that makes the others suspect. There is nothing that makes the others think, 
Well, it's going to be Judas, isn't it? He's always the one with the creepy voice and the, the money going missing. Judas had shared in every moment up to this point. Think of that. The feeding of the 5,000, the miracles, the healings, the going out and doing the wonders, the coming back when they couldn't do certain things and receiving teaching from Jesus. Judas was part of the inner crew, the inner core that had heard the teaching and had heard time and time again who Jesus was claiming to be. On the outside, he looked like a model disciple. But on the inside, the teaching hadn't quite got through. What gets even more interesting when you you think some commentators start to talk about the way the dinner was set up. Judas had been given a place of honour at this meal. The fact that Jesus could dip bread and provide a morsel directly to Judas implies that Judas was close to Jesus. We know that the disciple that Jesus loved was very close too because Peter, from a, a bit of a distance, said, ask him who he means. And yet Judas was there. Once again, if there's nothing false about Jesus, Jesus puts Judas, his betrayer, in a place of honour. A place where he can personally serve him a morsel from the feast. Think about that. Jesus knowing all that was to happen, and from the very beginning knowing not just the outward appearance, but what happens in the heart, had Judas sat at a place of honour. And when I was a youngster, I used to read passages like this, and it would confuse me. Because it says things like, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And when I was young, I used to think, well, surely if Jesus hadn't given the bread, that would have been a better plan. If that's when it happened, you know, surely just don't do that. And yet, sadly, we know that that this has been building. As I said, at the beginning of chapter 13, there's the prompting. In the other accounts, Judas has already made the plans. He's already asked the question. And I think this is the bit where it strikes home because this is the moment of choice. This is when Judas could have said, he's already washed my feet knowing my heart. He sat me at a place of honour knowing my heart. He still loved me like the rest knowing my heart. And here's my choice. And he takes it. And from that moment, the deed is done. We know more than that in verse 29 that Judas was a trusted disciple. The fact that the other disciples thought he was going out to do an errand for Jesus is typical. Judas held the money purse, a position of prestige and responsibility. We know at other times, as as, uh, Jeff had been telling us before, it was Judas that kept talking about the money and the poor. Do you remember when we talked about the perfume and the hair last time? He said, well, we could have sold that and given it to the poor. There was a sense that, that he had a voice about money. To all intents and purposes, Judas was a model disciple. He had a position. He wasn't just a believer. He had a role. He was treasurer. And yet something was very wrong. And without being cheesy, it's because he hadn't quite realised what the real treasure was. Because he would sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, you may say, well, that's interesting, but that's Judas. But if I said to you, well, here's a, here's a challenge. How like Judas are you? Because I know that when I compare myself to this list, it doesn't come out that favourably. Because on the outside, I may look like I have clean feet now. I know some of you may think, no, you don't. I've seen your shoes. But I work for the church. I do good deeds. I even get asked in to do assemblies at local schools. The church is looked upon well, both here in Long Crenn and down in Tame. I even had a role in turning on the Christmas lights in town. What higher praise is there from a local town? And yet I know that 
if it's just the externals that you're looking at, then that's fine. But I know what I'm like. And I know the petty way I think about people. And I know the, the, the way that things get me down that shouldn't. And I know that, that I'm the worst person in one sense to preach a sermon, as I think Neil and Jeff normally are. Now some of you are thinking, yes, I've been thinking that for years, but probably for different reasons. But I'm no expert at this. And my externals don't always match my internals. And my heart often is very far from the song we sang. I'll sing a thousand songs, it's easier. Because if I have to shift my heart, it means that actually something real is happening within me. And I quite enjoy getting together in a club like this. And I quite like the support I get when times are tough. And I quite like doing good things in the community. And I quite like it when the music has done so well that I lift my hands and it's all good. But that's all externals. I don't like it when people ask me searching questions. And they say, yeah, you tell me to join a home group and pray, but when did you last pray by yourself? When did you last read your Bible? Not for study or to preach, but for your own pleasure and for your own development. Those are difficult questions. Now, I'm not saying this to make you feel bad or to fire me. Please don't. But I include myself in this list. I may have clean feet, but something's not right on the inside. Similarly, you may not suspect me of being the worst of sinners, and yet the Bible says very clearly I am. You may suspect nothing about me. And yet, for those of you who haven't sat in a car, you may start to see a little glimpse. You may see it in the way I'm short with people when I'm tired. Or frustrated if people phone up at the wrong time. Or cross that Claire's mum phones every day during television. And although I'm silly about it, I guess I'm keeping up appearances. And there's a danger in that because there's after a while where I start to believe my appearances. And that's why we love to see the hypocrite torn down because we know that the appearances don't match up to the inside. And yet it becomes a bit more painful when it's me. When my character flaws or your character flaws are exposed. And I would challenge you that if you're starting to think, actually, do you know what, I am more like Judas than I thought, that's not a terrible thing to do tonight. Because as my picture has a man with a mask, there are times where you need to realise that the mask is not you. And that actually Jesus sees through the mask. And the only one you're fooling may be the other people in the short term, but it's yourself. Jesus doesn't need you to keep up appearances. He needs you to keep up a heart that is after his own. But always not as it seems. Let's just move through something. And I think this is quite telling. In verse 29 it says, Some thought Jesus was telling Judas to buy what was needed for the festival. Now I love this. And I don't know if it's intentional, but I'm going to bring this out tonight. Because have you ever thought that in one sense, Judas did go out and buy what was needed for that festival? By betraying Jesus, the lamb that was slain. By paying the price to betray him and get him nailed to a cross, hypocrites like me see in Jesus the one true act of genuine love, which is totally for my benefit and your benefit as the church. As Judas goes out and sells and buys this betrayal of Jesus, we get exactly what is needed for people who like to wear masks, who pretend that our outside appearance is all there is. It also says that maybe some of them thought that he was going to give something to the poor. And here was Jesus who had, who had given up just the appearance of righteousness, who had had the strongest words for the Pharisees, who said it's meaningless to do all this religious stuff if you're not caring for the widow and the orphan. It's meaningless to, to be blind guides like whitewashed tombs. He kept saying, hypocrites, 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 don't live like that. You lead your people astray. 
what was needed at the festival was someone to live perfectly, to die gloriously, and to rise victoriously. Now, I've said this to you before. It's become a bit of a catchphrase of mine. But I hope we get this, that this is the challenge to say, stop pretending, because the minute you stop pretending is the minute I can deal with it. The minute you realise you're not as good as you think is the minute I can show you how perfect I can make you, says Jesus. The minute you confess to me, I'll be faithful and just and will forgive you from all unrighteousness. This isn't a token thing where I bring just one or two things I've done and ask for forgiveness about them and then go home somehow feeling slightly better. This is a total surrender. Because that's what's needed. Because anything else is just pride. This is how righteous I am. Here's a couple of things I slipped up at. Can you sort me out? And then I'm back to where I am good. It's not me, it's him. Judas went out and bought exactly what was needed for the festival. Now I'm going to finish now. If you can just flick forward to to John 21. Because I want to ask you a question. If we are a bit like Judas, and maybe you're sat there thinking, do you know what? I am not. I am totally genuine. I am totally genuine. I always give my whole heart. And I always give everything. And what you get and what you see is exactly the same thing. Then that's excellent. Well done. You are well on the way to righteousness. However, we get these two characters because I used to read this and I would despair because I would think, well, what happened next to Judas? If I'm like Judas, what happened next to him? It wasn't good. I'll give you a clue. If you've not read it, read it. It's not a bad account. But Judas, so racked with guilt and so unable to realise and understand what Jesus had promised to do, ends up dying. At his own hand and in a messy way. And yet Peter, who Jesus challenges just after Judas, if you read it in the account later, he says, one of you else is going to betray me as well. And he talks about Peter. Peter gives us hope. Because in John 21, 15 to 19, it says this. This is after the resurrection. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than this? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And he goes on to tell him that that's going to be costly for Peter that he will give his life for something glorious and not just himself. Because Peter had been a hypocrite to save his own life before. And yet maybe he started to realise when Jesus was resurrected that death was not the end. That the worst thing we think might happen to us if we stand up for Jesus maybe is nothing compared to either the glory of the shame of admitting you follow Christ or missing out because you denied him. Maybe Peter's perspective had been changed when he realised that Jesus knew all things. And maybe it hurt him because having been asked three times, it reminded him that three times he denied Jesus. But maybe for the first time, Peter was being honest with himself. Yes, you do know I love you. You do know I love you. And our little chapters, John, uh, where we've been looking at, time and time again, love is mentioned. 31 times, in fact, in three chapters compared to just 16 before that. That's a good stat for you, if you like. Because love is the key. Because when you're being a hypocrite, you love yourself more than you love Jesus. 
and you love your position and the way people look at you more than the way God loves. Because it's all false. And the way you deal with it is to realise that God loves you right through the mask, right to the heart of you, despite your flaws and failings and despite the times you messed up. Jesus loves you. God loves you for that. But he loves you so much he doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to call out. Call out for rescue. Call out for a new life. Call out for rebirth. And there's something quite liberating about taking off that mask and having friendships based around who you are in Christ and not who you project yourself to be. There's something quite liberating about being in church knowing that your worship is not just an appearance but something genuinely from the heart because you love God. There's something quite liberating about knowing that other people are hypocrites too. I think that ad was not a bad ad. I doubt many people would come to church as a result because we don't like to admit we're hypocrites. But the church is full of hypocrites. The church is full of hypocrites. It's one of the biggest criticisms that, that people give us nowadays, isn't it? You're just a bunch of hypocrites. You say one thing and do another. But maybe the reason why that post is a good thing is it's saying, yeah, we know. Now, I wish there was something slightly different at the bottom. Rather than saying, no one is righteous, not even one, I wish it said, Christ died to save sinners, of which I am the worst. Because then that gives a little bit of hope. Rather than just adding on the line, you're a hypocrite, I'm a hypocrite, let's revel in being hypocrites together. I don't think it's a bad ad, as long as you realise that. However, without that, maybe not so good. So I abstain, as did most of you. So, I'm going to stop there. I want to challenge you guys. How close are you to Judas? How close are you to Peter? Would you deny Christ to save your own life? Maybe. But I love the fact that Jesus loved Judas enough to wash his feet. And I love the fact that Jesus loved Judas enough to place him at a seat of honour, despite what he had done. And I love the fact that Jesus, despite knowing what Judas did, released him to do it. Because I love the fact that Jesus knew something more glorious would happen as a result. And that me, a hypocrite, can take off the mask and know that I'm fully known and fully loved. And I hope that's a message for you guys tonight too.